This morning, we're going to talk about the last piece, and it's really going to uh, fling us into the rest of the book and really set us up to talk about the rest of the book of Titus. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'd like to read to you from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. God's word says this, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or, sub- or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. Verse 12, one of, the, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be of sound faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. God, we ask your blessing as we look to your word. Uh, We ask that you would work us through this and that you would stir our hearts. God, you know uh, the, the mind that you've given us and where we're at in our mind right now with you. God, I ask that you would uh, bring us to the place we need to be this morning as we look at your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. God, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to be uh, looking at verse 9 and moving on towards the end of the chapter this morning. Verse 9 is really the last uh, identification of an elder. Remember that Titus is looking around in all these churches in Crete. I was thinking about the island of Crete and where Bear Valley Church would have been on the island. We would have been in the center, right? And the, if there's any mountainous areas away, most of you, when you think of islands, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be on Crete? I'd be, I'd have beachfront property and, you know, we'd be laying out at the, we're not those type of people. I just want to tell you that we're in the center, in the center, in the mountain where it snows. And sometimes, I don't know if it snows on Crete, but if it did, that's where we would be, uh, the cheaper land. Uh, Anyways. (laughs) So Titus is looking for elders. He is, he is, he's charged with identifying them and setting them up 
in the churches. And it comes down to, it says there's an issue of character, above reproach. And then he says, I want to talk to you about how you can identify them through their marriage and their relationship with their children. And he's gone through that and then he talks about their character, some things that they can't be and other things that they must be. And in this list of things that they must be, the last one starts in verse 9. And I, I call this the critical crowning identification. It says this in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must hold firm to that. The picture of this is something that they would cling to. Something that they would cling to. It's the idea that when you've given up everything else and when you strip away a person, it's the one thing that they cling to. Uh, I told myself I wasn't going to use this illustration, but I'm going to. Uh, One of the shows I grew up watching was Laverne and Shirley. Most of my wisdom came from shows like that, okay? Uh, there was one episode where they won this uh, thing where they were in a grocery store and they got, uh, I think it was two or three minutes to grab whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted, and, and they got it for free. It was a shopping spree that they could go throughout the whole store. And so they were super excited. They had plans. They had goals. They had strategies on how they were going to do this. And then, you know, the the timer goes on and they, they, they go out throughout the store and they're, they're running through aisles and they're dumping stuff in these, these carts and everything. And, and then finally, you, you can see the clock going down and down. And, and finally, they, they, were, they saw it happening, that their time was running out. And they had these shopping carts so filled and they tipped over and they were tripping and they were falling and they realized they weren't going to get anything at all. And one of them had like these hostess cupcake type things that they loved so much. And the other one had these cookies. And at the end of the time, they, they had to get it across this line. You could see them both just diving for the line, just getting the one thing across the line. Uh, that's the picture of an elder, not holding cupcakes or ding-dongs or anything. But it's the one thing for them. It's the one thing. That, that there's, that taken everything away, everything else that, that is stripped aside, it's the one thing in them. And it's not just something that they talk about loving, but it's the thing that they are basing their life upon. You see, personally, we look to an elder, and really this is the picture of godliness for anybody. Some of us have struggled uh, with these last few messages because you say, well, I'm never going to be an elder. Never going to be an elder. This is not just the picture of an elder. This is a picture of a godly person in the church. And for us, we don't, we don't need to look at this book as one of many books on our shelves. One of many things that we talk about when we talk about things that we want to talk about. But this one book right here is the thing that we cling to. It's not our upbringing. It's not the church that I grew up on believe this, believe this. It's that we believe what God has said and we cling to it. We, we won't give it up for anything. 
We will not let go of it. And and there's a reason for that, right? It says right in that passage, verse 9, you must hold firmly uh, to the trustworthy word, the trustworthy word. You, you know why we cling to this in such a way where it's the same thing that we wake up with every morning and, you know, when you're 42, when you've turned 43, you're still cling to it. It's something that year after year after year you can still hold on to. You know, you know why? Because it's trustworthy. It's not changing. It's going to be the same. It's the truth. It's not something that will go out of style. That's the thing, isn't it? That most people believe the Bible has gone out of style. And they have exchanged the truth uh, for some other uh, guess or the lies of this world. So we're looking for elders. We're looking for people. We're looking to be people that cling to the trustworthy word as taught. I think it's interesting, too. I'll just briefly say this. As taught, it says in there. You see, in their time, uh, they were handed this through teaching, the apostles' teaching, uh, through Paul and the others. They were given the word. They were taught it orally as well as they would have had um, known about the Old Testament as well. This was not a a message that the elders made up. Uh, If I can say it this way, um, I'll probably say it again. We don't need any smart elders. We don't need any of them. And good thing, too, because some of you have looked at the elders that we have right now, and you say, well, there's not a smart man there. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. You know why? Because all they need to do is grab and cling to the word that's been taught. This one right here, okay? We're messengers, we don't have to make. We don't come, have to come up with best ideas. We don't have to have this new message that no one's ever heard before. You just need this one right here. This one. And so, as elders, he says, look for people not who are the smartest, not who are the greatest leaders, but look for ones who hold firmly and to the trustworthy word as taught. He gives us the reason, and really this gets us right into the rest of the book. And and right after the other things that uh, are going to be talked about in this book. In verse 10 it says this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, middle of verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. There's really two, uh, two main functions of an elder... As someone clinging to God's word, there's two things that must be done. It's to teach and to rebuke. Teach and to rebuke. And even the idea of, uh, it's the idea that it's not just patting someone on the back and saying, hey, I got an idea for you. It's the idea of stop it. Stop it. A rebuke is not... uh, um, you know, when you get some time, maybe you should consider these things. But it, it, it's it's something because it's dangerous. It's a calling to change. And the idea of teaching is the idea of preparation, right? It's giving them knowledge that they don't know. And what are we to teach? Teach the Bible. What are we to rebuke about when people deviate from what God has said to bring them back, to bring them back? 
real two simple things. And really, this is what needs to be happening in our church all the time, all around, in everything that we do, teaching and rebuking, teaching and rebuking. Uh, It's the idea that we're not bringing to one another and wagging our finger at each other and stuff like this, but we're constantly pointing people to the Word of God. You know, it's hard uh, about uh, the idea of teaching is... um, one of the great questions that always came up in school for me is, when am I ever going to need this stuff? Have you ever said that? When am I ever going to need this stuff? And the sad thing about that, right? There's plenty of stuff that you learn that you've never needed, right? The only thing I needed some of that stuff for is to help my kids with homework. But apparently, that boat has sailed. Uh, uh, You know, if I ask my kids, can I help you with uh, your homework? They say, yeah, can you get me a glass of water? You know? <laughs> why do we need, why do we need that? that? That's the question. But as we go through the scriptures, if we ask the question, why are we going to need this? The, the quick answer is for the days ahead, for the days ahead. What's going to happen in the days ahead? I don't know. I don't know. You know, what are you going to need to be prepared for? I don't know. But you're going to need to be prepared for it. And it's in relationship with God, the God of the Bible. We come this morning uh, to this, this critical, critical crowning identification of clinging to the Word of God, of being loving it, so that they might be able to teach and rebuke. We go from really the general need for every church, that every church, this church and every other church on Crete, every other church in Tehachapi in California, definitely in California, the great state of California. They need, God's word needs to be the thing that guides us. His words, his thoughts need to be our thoughts and be the things we love. We move on in verse 10 to really their specific uh, need that what was going on in Crete and what really was how their culture was identified there and it really isn't too far from where we are this morning in verse 10 he says this for uh, kind of connecting to that last thought he says this for there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party I want to point something out there this is within the context of the church. It's not necessarily that they are in the church, but they are. But it's the idea that they are right outside. It's the idea that they could come in at any moment or, or leave at any moment. It's part of the, the culture that they are a part of. And what does it say? There's one guy who's a false teacher who's going to cause you some trouble. Is that, is that what it says? What does it say in verse 10? Many, many. This is not something that is a rare occasion for the church. That, that there aren't, it's not like there is a need for teaching and rebuking every once in a while. It's that this is part of the church all the time. This is a danger to the church all the time. And you say, what's the danger? The danger is in people not holding to the truth, not holding to the Word of God, and not just making bad decisions themselves, 
but making them in such a way where they drag others down as well. Because there are many. And what are they doing? Uh, It says they're insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. In the midst of this Isle of Crete, there were those who were Jews by tradition and by connection of generations. And as they looked at the gospel, they continued to cling to the laws and ceremonies and the things that they thought would make them good. It was a self-righteousness that they had. They kept on clinging to the things that thought the lists of man-made ideas and laws that were not meant to make them good, but to show them their own weakness. And they cling to those. And in the midst of these little churches that were throughout Crete, there were those, especially of the circumcision party, that were in their midst. And he was saying, that's the danger, the danger I like to call this the idea that the the self-righteous, the self-righteous. And when you say self-righteous, most of us uh, think of someone else. We think of someone else. You, oh, yeah. Glad Kevin's saying that because I see them up in that third row or the fifth row. You know, they They always come here and they always talk about how awesome they are. And they're not even close to as awesome as I am. <laughs> I don't know why they say that. You know, they, they always think they're so holy, not even close to where I'm at. They say they serve. I have served in many ways more than that. They, they think they're givers. I have been a giver. I have been a giver. I'm the one. The idea of self-righteousness is that we look to something that we do, something that we do that makes us right before God. Been circumcised, took communion, been baptized. I give to the church. You want to know how much? I served. I, I taught Sunday school. I was a wanna leader. Even got the shirt. You know, wear wear it around out in town just so people know. Been an elder. Been an elder. You know, they must have thought I was really awesome to be an elder. It's the idea of self-righteousness that we point to something that we do that makes us great. And and, then he says there are many, there are many, there are many people who will infiltrate our ranks that will take us a different direction. They will deceive us into believing something different than what God has said. There are many This was the culture that they were in. And if you go down to verse 11, it talks about what the the implications of these people, these many are, what happens. In verse 11, it says this. They must be silenced. The idea of putting a gag on them, you know, put a sock in their mouth so they can't talk anymore. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching what is for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. See, the picture here is this, the danger here, and and this is sometimes what we forget, is the danger is not just that we make bad decisions, that we uh, believe in something that's not true, that we're self-righteous, and that it's messing up our life. That is a danger. 
But the great danger is, is that we impact others with that same thing. That it, that it is a message that goes out throughout the church and it draws us away from the grace that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That something would draw us away. It's not just bad that I didn't get it, that I wasn't following the truth of God's word, but it's a danger because I could draw somebody away as well. And he says it's messing up whole families. I, I, when I read that this morning, I was thinking of um, what we believe Jesus wants us to be about at this church, rescuing families. This is messing up families. There we go, my notes. Um, I want to tell you, uh, if you think you're going to be good enough for God, um, that's going to mess you up. And if you share that with others, it's going to mess them up as well as their children. As well as their children. It's going to infiltrate and it's going to continue to uh, unsettle them and cause them to get on that that wheel of accomplishment and say, "Ah, I just got to run faster. I just got to do more. I just got to do more. And it's going to ruin families. It's going to ruin them. He says this, uh, he says, these people need to be gagged. They need to be silenced because they're ruining families. He goes on to verse 12 and he says this, one of the Cretans, uh, we believe this to be uh, epitomes, um, he wrote this and this is, he, he's quoted in here. Uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, not a uh, prophet in the sense of speaking for God, but someone that speaks for the the culture of the day, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Anybody from the Isle of Crete here this morning? It's good to have you. Uh, It's good to have you. Um, you might feel very at home here. There's uh, some of us that uh, remi- might remind you of home. Uh, it says this, verse 13, this testimony is true. I, I think that's interesting because what, what he's saying is there, there's a reputation in Crete that even one of your own prophets, one of the ones who is wisest and speaks and writes, and, and this is what he says, and it's true. It's true. It's not just a reputation, it's the truth. That this was the culture that they were a part of. I think it's interesting, uh, as we look at this, he he talks about, uh, especially those of the circumcision party. Especially those. There are many. And the idea of the circumcision party is laws, right? Being good enough, being good enough. Got all these lists of things that you're doing. You're pointing to that list, saying, I'm good and better than you and right with God because of this list right here. And then he goes on to say, but Crete itself, Cretans are known to be uh, these evil people that are gluttons and uh, liars. And that, that's true. That's true of their culture, too. And it seems like they have both, right? They have people that are self-righteous and think they're awesome. And then you have others who don't care about anything and just go headlong into sin. Middle of verse 13, it tells us, I'm sorry. Yeah, middle of verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be of in sound faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths 
and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He calls them and he says, rebuke them, rebuke them. Have any of you had a doctor or a nurse talk harshly with you? My mom was a nurse and she's, we'll just leave it at that. She's the sweetest lady, but once I wouldn't do things, you know, and she goes into nurse mode. If you know nurses, you know about that, right? I've heard of harsh things that doctors have said to patients and they say, you need to do this. You need to stop doing that. You need to stop. It's like, who are you to talk to me? You know, how can you talk to me like that? You got to ask the question, why? Why do they say that? Because if it's dangerous what you're doing, you need to stop it right now. And we're not going to have a sweet conversation and say, why don't you get to this next year sometime? You need to stop it now. And he says, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be in sound faith, that they may be in Jesus, trusting in him. Not devoting themselves to lists or commands of people who turn away from the truth. Reminded of uh, Luther uh, was quoted, and you know we don't know exactly how this came out, but he spoke of humanity, and he referred to us as in humanity as a drunken German peasant that after falling off his horse on the right, falls off it the next time on the left. This picture that we're trying to do what we're going to do, and in our failings and fumblings, we go into self-righteousness one time, we fall off the other into the sins of the world the next. There's a sense of we're just not getting it in our human, in our ideas, that we're fumbling around not knowing which way's up. When we need Jesus, we need Jesus. This is an elder's job is to bring people to Jesus. As we look um, at our next point, as we continue on in this passage, I want you to, this is interesting the way this unpacks here. He says this, um, starting at verse 15, he says this, To the pure, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. And so we get this picture here. He says, talking about purity. He says, to those who are pure, everything is pure. And you go, that's hard to imagine. But then on the other extreme, he says, to those who are unpure and unbelieving, everything is unpure and defiled. That word defiled, it means the idea of ruined or unuseful for anything, needing to be thrown out. The picture here is this, that the Jewish leaders, as they were walking around in their fine robes and talking about all the great things that they had done, if you had asked them, they'd say, are you pure? They would say, oh, of course I'm pure. And why do you know that you're pure? They would say, oh, I've kept all these things. I've done this. I've given this. I've, I've gone about this ceremony. I, I've done this. This is why I am pure. This is how I know it. And yet the pureness of their heart, they were not pure in their heart. They had not been changed by the gospel. But he says, for those who have, if you've been changed on the inside, if you're truly pure on the inside, then out of your life will be a purity that comes from Christ. But he says to those on the other side, this. But if you're defiled and unbelieving, 
Nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I want to tell you this morning, uh, I don't know where you stand with Christ. I can't look in your heart and I can't uh, follow you around and it's not for me to do anyways. But uh, I want to tell you that that most of us to some degree or another have struggled with self-righteousness. We've thought that we could be good enough to be right with God. That that we say, well, you know, we consider going to heaven. We say, well, I, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm good enough to go. I, I'm, I'm one that's not as bad as the other people around. So I'm good enough for God to have me in his kingdom. I want to tell you that's not true. It's not true. The good things that you do, the good things that you do, are defiled by the sin in your heart. There's not a sense of goodness in you. You need Jesus. It's an issue of purity in your heart, and you cannot be pure enough. You think about all the things that you have done, and you say, well, I haven't done anything. You haven't? You haven't, you haven't been proud? You haven't been proud? It's a sin, you know. You, you, you've never lied. I'm not a liar. You've never lied, though? Oh, yeah, there was that one time, but I didn't lie. I don't lie all the time. Tell it to the judge, you know. You know, I only killed that one guy. I don't kill all the time. I don't kill all the time. Do you understand this? That, that without the, the blood of Jesus covering you, without him being the one who is righteous on your behalf, you are not righteous. This passage tells us, he says, you know, uh, for those for those who are pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Going on, it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. <clears throat> It describes in those in that last verse 16 that they don't know him. They don't know him. Don't know Jesus. That their works show that they don't know Jesus. This morning, as we uh, bring the section on eldering to a close, and really, but this will continue to come up over and over again, I want to give you some summary points. First of all, I want to tell you that we are looking for elders. We are looking for the godly. We are looking for those who are learners of the word. They're livers of the word. They're teachers of the word. The second thing I want to tell us is there are two dangers for us present always in every church. There are two dangers that we must protect against, and we must protect against them individually as well as in the church. The first one is self-righteousness, thinking that we're great, thinking that because of what we do, God is somehow impressed with us. Self-righteousness is a danger for a church like ours. It is. Many of you have accomplished many things in your life. You have a long resume, but I want to tell you, your resume is useless in impressing God. 
The things that you have been able to accomplish were from Him to begin with. Okay? Self-righteousness is a danger. And at the same time, at the same time on the other side, the danger for us to not care about what God has said, to jump headlong into sin, to go after every pleasure thinking that it will replace God as some kind of idol, thinking that somehow if we eat more, if we we have more money, if we chase after things, if we get our way through manipulation and lying, no matter the cost, thinking that that will be the place where we need to be. These two dangers are always present in the church and in our hearts. And then lastly, I want to tell you this. There's a simple answer. There's a simple answer for all of life. It's found in this Bible here. This Bible has a message. The message is about a man named Jesus. God come in the flesh who died for you and for me. And if we would submit to him as Lord, that, he would, that we would accept him as, as being the Savior that we need, he's the simple answer that will work for us both in our own lives and in this church. The answer is Jesus. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this morning. Um, God, as we think through what our life is all about, Lord, we do go into these laws and lists of things that, uh, God, that fill us with pride and think that we are great and we are not. God, forgive us. God, and at the same time, we are uh, tempted and tried and, and, and we love the sins of this world. We love to fill ourselves. And yet, with the things that don't matter and the things that will kill us in the end. God, help us to cling to your word. The message found in it, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him and him alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.